I want to invite you now to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7, where we find ourselves again in our study and journey through this great book. This book is one that is filled with truth and filled with Christ and filled with great things to explore with some depth. We have to put our thinking caps on a bit, but it's very practical and uniquely practical, even in terms of evangelism. I do some evangelism that uh, is related to a hobby of mine. It's uh, a hobby that I've mentioned a couple times. I, I'm not a good swimmer, but several years ago, I was talked into showing up to a water polo club, um, you know, and I showed up and I kept going. And so at uh, the University of Alaska, Anchorage, I go there to the pool and uh, on Sunday nights when we don't have worship in the round, I basically have that catharsis and I, I would call it physical evangelism, right? Because you really, you really have some life on life going on there. But the different people who are present all come from a variety of religious backgrounds. Uh, you have people who are just, you know, outright agnostics. They don't know that they know anything. You have atheists who are outright saying there is no God. Then you have an Orthodox Jew who's a public school teacher. You have a uh, Roman Catholic, a practicing Roman Catholic who is there, who I'm kind of trying to build a little bit of a bridge with. He can't play polo very well, so I've got the upper hand. Um, <laughs> you just dunk people. There's a lot of baptizing that goes on in Sunday nights. We just, it's over at the college But there's a garden variety of spiritualities there. There's new age people, people who are just outright naturalists. And the other day they were talking about the schedule in light of Easter Sunday. And so I just took the opportunity. We're sort of deep breathing and recovering. And I just said, hey, you know, I'll create a section on Sunday morning if you want to come out for Easter and hear me preach and 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 just want to invite you to church. It's an awkward silence after I said that. Pretty awkward. I hushed the pool, but uh, people didn't all know what to say. Who knows? But later we were finishing in the locker room area and uh, this young guy, I think he's a college student, said, you know, I was so relieved to find out. He wasn't talking to me. He was just talking. And he was so relieved to find out that Buddhism is not a religion. And I went, oh, that's interesting. And, and then he said, the reason for that is Buddha is not a god. And so Buddhism can't be a religion. And I went, well, and, you know, I had to speak up. I, what could I do? The awkward factor was about to arise. I, I just said, listen, the Buddhism is a religion, just like all religions. But, yeah, you're right. They're not really worshiping Buddha. They're worshiping self, worshiping self. People worship themselves or they worship the true God, which is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I would have said that to anyone in uh, any situation other than being in Christ. I guess that person was comforting himself saying, if Buddha isn't God, then Buddhism is a philosophy. And so there's no accountability because there's no God. I think that's what people do. Awkward silence fell, but the truth reigned. Romans 1, uh, it says very clearly in verse 18 that people are either worshiping the God of glory or they are exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images, uh, reflections of themselves. They worship their 
mortal selves, mortal man or birds or animals or creeping things. People create false gods, but really these are a bunch of mirrors reflecting back to themselves because they're worshiping themselves as they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They don't want to worship the true God who will give them accountability for things that should be not spoken of. The end of Romans 1 says people worship the creature rather than the creator, which is naturalism, naturalism. It's things that people with a debased mind trail into and spiral down into. And we see that in our culture, don't we? Well, Hebrews, I want you to turn your attention back here, is a book that's addressing people who are not primarily naturalist, but they were coming out of Judaism. These are believers. The audience is made up of the church, but it was people who had come out of organized religion and they had found Christ sort of um, three, three generations down where Christ had spoken to people and won people to Christ. And then those people won these people to Christ. So they're like a third generation of Christians. They're believers. They're coming out of Judaism. But if you are stuck in organized religion or you're stuck in naturalism, where you're sort of this free spirit, just worshiping God in nature, both do not have God. You're not better off because you're religious compared to being a naturalist or a naturalist compared to being religious. Both have great, significant, negative, eternal consequences. If you do not know the true God, it's eternal hell. Deep down, people who are either in organized religion or who are naturalists don't want to face the true God, by the way. I think in their consciences, they're sitting there and saying, I know deep down that if I were to meet the true God, he is holy and I am estranged or at enmity with him. So neither path wants God at all because of sin and the guilt of sin. Well, the author of Hebrews is trying to reinvigorate or re-enliven the church as its readers and trying to fire them up by saying there is a different path than organized religion. Don't return back even a smidge to organized religion. Turn to Orthodox Christianity. Turn to the truth of Christ because you have something that organized religious people do not have. And that is you have as a Christian direct access to God. Do you realize that that is the greatest gift of Christianity is that you have direct free flowing, ready access with a living Lord who loves you, desperately loves you, knows you and has invited you into his life for you to know him. This is one of the major themes of Hebrews and even in Hebrews 7. It's the idea of drawing near to God. Look at verse 19. Draw, we draw near to God. Do you see that there? This is picked up again in verse 25. We have a God who ever lives to make intercession for us. And so we draw near to this God. It's amazing. John 15, 15 says, no longer do I call you servants. This was Christ talking to his disciples. He said, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. John 17, three, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Philippians 3, 8, Paul's testimony. He says, I count everything, what? 
loss, everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. What is evangelism? Evangelism is telling people they can have that. Do you understand? You're, you're giving them treasure when you speak of Christ because you should be speaking of the relationship that you have with him. Hebrews 4.16, we've talked about the confidence to draw near to the throne of grace, to receive mercy and grace, to help in time of need. Hebrews 6.19, Christ is our sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Hebrews 10.19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, this is not just ceremonial speak. This is not just tying the Old Testament together to the New Testament. All that is good. But what we have is a unique, intimate, ready, eternal, permanent, awesome, incomparable relationship with the living Lord who's Jesus Christ. I better hear an amen, something. Just give me something this morning. I mean, this is what we have. It is the treasure of the gospel. Hebrews 7, 19, we draw near to God. Hebrews 7, 25, we draw near to God. In our darkest moments, this is what you will naturally and voluntarily go to is Christ in your darkest moments. And yet through the monotony of life, we should also access this relationship. And let me tell you something, as a believer, you cannot lose your access to Christ. You cannot. But as a believer, oftentimes people will deny themselves the access that they still have. Do you understand? There is something that is lost, even though we haven't lost it. And that is the desire for accessing Christ. Our desire quells, our, our desire, the, the, it's like the pilot light turns way down almost to nothing because of sin, because of broken relationships, because of hurt, disillusionment, forgetting who Christ is. So what is the answer to turning the pilot light back up? How do we inflame the access to Christ in our lives? Well, two things and Hebrews 7 gives us two major themes to look at. And verses 1 to 10 is the theme of the superiority of Christ. You have to ask yourself and answer the question, do I believe Christ reigns that he is superior? Is he worth it? And then secondly, you have to answer the question, do I believe Christ's sacrifice for me was sufficient? And that's verses 11 through 19. So 1 to 10, is Christ superior in your life? And Hebrews 7, 11 to 19, is Christ's sacrifice sufficient? Let's look back at verse one of chapter seven, just to get a running start. We've been learning about Melchizedek. Say, wow, what a lesson that we have to learn on Melchizedek. Who is Melchizedek? No wonder I'm getting, I don't get my phone out to text. I'm doing it to time myself. I just, you bring up Melchizedek and you never know when you're going to stop, right? 
Who is Melchizedek? Well, he is a type of Christ. He was a true, genuine, historical figure along with the king of Sodom. Genesis 14 verses 17 through 20 explains this account where Abraham, who was Abram at that time, had come back from war, from a stealth mission that we learned about last week. You can listen to it online. A stealth mission where he was going to rescue his nephew Lot and other hostages who'd been taken from four kings who were invading the Transjordan to the good land where Lot had gone. And so with night vision and the whole, the whole deal, Abram got his uh, basic special force team together and took back his nephew and the goods and took back spoils from war. And he was so grateful, I assume, that he was alive and that the Lord had protected him that he gave a tenth of the war plunder to Melchizedek, to God but to Melchizedek as a high priest who was interceding on his behalf to God in the Old Testament, before the Old Covenant, before the Aaronic priesthood. This all predates that. This is patriarchal times. And this was what Abraham or Abram did. And Hebrews 7, 1 is commentary about this event describing Melchizedek. His very name means king of righteousness. He's the king of Salem, which is ancient Jerusalem, I believe. Uh, Salem meaning peace, a city of peace. And Abraham um, met this king who is a dual role priest. He's both. Uh, Melchizedek serves as a perfect representation of Christ who is both king and and priest. He's from the Davidic line, the tribe of Judah, a Davidic king. This is Christ, not from the tribe of Levi, where the Aaronic priesthood came and the the Levitical priesthood came. This is Christ who came through the Davidic line as a king and also as the high priest, the highest priest, the one who comes as both intercessor and bridge and sacrifice. For us, So the picture is very apropos to foreshadow Christ, Christ um, who is represented by Melchizedek. Melchizedek who served El Elyon, the most high God, verse 1, the God of all of the universe, all of the nations is pictured here. Melchizedek who had in verse 3 untraceable records without a father or mother or genealogy. That would be unheard of normally, but Melchizedek had no genealogy and no record there to resemble the son of God. You see in verse 3, no record of his life ending. It just was to resemble, it was to foreshadow and depict a priest who was forever because Christ is our priest eternally, eternally. Oftentimes, we will be tempted to worship anything inferior to this Christ. Do you see that? John Piper put it this way. Don't sacrifice what's Christ for cheap substitutes. And the cheap substitutes are everywhere. Immorality, all kinds of things that you can get involved in where you're trying to enliven your heart with the world and your flesh instead of Christ, instead of who is Superior. This is when we want access with the Lord and cheap, cheap substitutes need to be stricken or struck down. So the author of Hebrews is not letting the tithing issue go. I don't know that he was Baptist, but he keeps bringing up tithing both in verse two and then verses four 
through 10, he's talking about the tithing and blessing event. Abram comes to Melchizedek, he tithes, and Melchizedek receives that, but then returns a blessing, a blessing on Abram who was given the promises. We'll talk about that. That's the scene that's being opened up here. Look at verse 7. Skipping down real quickly, here is the principle of this text. It is beyond dispute that the inferior, this is Abram, is blessed by the superior, which is Melchizedek. Christ is superior to anything that is inferior. This is the point of our first section that we're looking through. The author is talking about tithing. Abram's tithe or Abraham's tithe in this case is an example of, and catch this, vertical worship, vertical worship, vertical. Our giving should be vertical. He represents that to us in ancient days. Abraham was not under any covenantal obligation to give a tenth or to give anything to Melchizedek. There's no sense of that in the the account of Genesis 14. It's just, he shows up Melchizedek is there, and based on Melchizedek's greatness in the Lord, he gives, Abraham gives. He's giving to the Lord through Melchizedek at that point. It's an act of worship. It's not an act of obligation. So much giving is by obligation. It's the difference between religious duty and worshiping faith. It's a tenth of the war spoils. And it goes on. Look at verse Well, let's just read through this. Verse four, see how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And verse five, and those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people. This is horizontal obligation. This is law-based obligation. Uh, The Levites had the privilege of receiving from their brothers, the Israelites, a tithe. This was like a salary. It was a blessing to them. If you were in Levitical work, you needed to eat. And so part of you being able to be fed and you being able to take care of yourself and keep ministering was to be paid. That's tithing in the old covenant system. It's not meant as a vertical act of worship in that sense, like what Abraham did. This was just provision. That is from their Brothers, So it's the idea of within the brotherhood, within being an Israelite, there was tithing that would go on horizontally, though these are, these also are descended from Abraham. So it's from Abraham. This is where this came from. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. So you have this Abraham to the Levitical priests that were being tithed to and receiving tithes based on the commandment, that is wholly separate from Melchizedek who supersedes who they were. And he is the one who is the blessor of Abraham and Abraham is the blessee in this regard. Again, the inferior is blessed by the superior. The inferior here is... Not anything negative. Abraham was the one given the promises. In out of his loins would all the families of the earth, what? Be blessed. This is the Old Testament gospel where God is saving the nations through faith 
that was exampled in Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And everyone who's ever been saved, saved ever and ever will be saved, believes God. And then God makes them righteous, just like Abraham. And that's a golden thread from Genesis to Revelation and all through the book of Romans and Galatians being reckoned righteous, made righteous. That's Abrahamic covenantal language. But Melchizedek was the one who was the superior and Christ is our superior. It says in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. This, these are the Israelites. These are the this is the tribe of Levi, the Levite, the Levitical priesthood, mortal men, people who die. But in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. In other words, again, Melchizedek had no genealogical record of his death, of, of his family history. He is a type of Christ, Christ who is eternal and lives. By the way, we need a savior who lives, do we not? a high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us, pleading on our behalf, defending us from the Satan, the slewfoot accuser. Priests would stop ministering sometimes, oftentimes at age 50 or when they died. But Melchizedek is different and there's no record of his death and there's no successor after him. Well, to seal up this picture, he... Uh, the author makes a very unique point in verse nine. One might even say that Levi himself who received tithes paid tithes through Abraham. So Levi, who is he? Well, you have Abraham, you have Isaac, and then Isaac has Jacob and Esau, but you have, you have Jacob and from Jacob, you have Levi. And so you have all of these generations passed down that are bound up in this picture where Abraham in his loins as a father figure, like a federal headship moment, like where Adam sinned and in Adam all died. You have Abraham who's tithing and in Abraham, all of those who are going to follow him are tithing with him. They're all worshiping the true God. Those who are going to be believers through him are worshiping the true God. And so that worship was inextricably linked to Abraham's moment. What does all this mean? Well, it means that Christ is superior. Verse 10, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek Melchizedek met him. Christ is superior to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Christ is superior to Levi. Christ is superior to the old covenant. Christ is superior to anything that's natural around us. Christ is superior to the creation that he created. He's reflected through creation, but he's superior over it. He's superior over the universe, over the galaxies. He's superior in all of macro creation. He's superior in all of microscopic creation. He reigns, he reigns, he reigns, he rules. He rules powerfully in a large way, making kingdoms rise and fall. And he rules within your life. And this is the intimacy that you can tap into knowing this Christ who is superior. But there's a second barrier to our access that we need to topple over. And that is the barrier of guilt. I think we settle for a cheap substitute and that's one barrier. 
we worship something inferior rather than superior, but we also oftentimes will talk ourselves out of access with Christ, with really meeting with Christ in a personal way, in a way that changes your life, taking a walk with Jesus Christ and talking to him and believing he hears you and reading scripture where it's real to you and you're, you're obeying and listening to what the Holy Spirit is leading in your life. And that is that we oftentimes forget the sufficiency of the cross, the sufficiency of Christ's death on our behalf. This section builds right on top of what we've been talking about. The preceding argument builds into this one, beginning in verse 11. Melchizedek being greater than Abraham and Levi proves that the Levitical priesthood was inferior and inferior specifically in this sense, no Old Testament sacrifice was ever going to be sufficient to give you a permanent connection to God. Do you hear what I said? No Old Testament priest was going to be complete enough within himself. No Old Testament sacrifice, no bridge that was made was ever going to be permanent to secure your access to Christ. It's never going to happen. And that's what the author is saying. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood for under it, the people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Levitical priesthood provided a temporary access. And the author here is framing up this section, verse 11 being the beginning of it, and verse 19 being the end of this section with a key word, and that is the word perfection. Do you see that there in both verses? It's from the original um, Greek word telos. It's like the end, the complete place where we find ourselves one day glorified. Perfection, being made perfect. It's the idea. That's the concept here. Perfection was never going to be attainable through the law or the priest that came from the law. Thomas Schreiner said that perfection is general forgiveness of sins. It's ethical righteousness. And what finally provides access to God, it's righteousness, it's forgiveness, it's being made complete. Levitical priesthood was interim by design. And it was also connected inextricably to the law. The law was promising that obedience to the law would give you this perfection, would give you this restored access. Sacrifices would make up for your disobedience and you would be restored. You'd be fine. But it was only going to be a failed solution of an old system. In the mind of the devout Israelite under the old covenant, a qualified Levitical priest was the best possible human means to getting access to God. Do you see that? That is such a sad thing in old Judaism or in other religions where they put a priest up as a physical intercessor and you're trusting in a man and believing to the best of your ability that that man can get you to God. That's a sad thing, is it not? It's very sad. Talk about that sometimes out in water polo. (laughs) But we need Christ. 
A priest was, from a human standpoint, someone who was perfect from their minds, at least according to the law. They had to be pure by the descent of Aaron. They had 142 possible blemishes that that could disqualify them from entering into God's presence. They couldn't do their job if they had some kind of facial blemish. Leviticus 21, 16 and 24 talks about some of these. None of your offspring through their generations who has a blemish may approach and offer the bread of his God. No one who has a blemish shall draw near, not a blind man, not a lame man, not a multi-face, mutilated face or a limb too long, a man with an injured foot or hand, a hunchback dwarf or defect, itching disease, scabs, crushed anatomy. No man of the offspring of Aaron and the priest who has a blemish shall come near to offer the Lord's food offerings. By contrast, you as a priest of God, Christians are part of the priesthood, according to 1 Peter, right? A royal nation, a holy priesthood, a people of God's own possession. We, we can enter in, whether we have blemishes, whether we have defects, because all of that is with the covering and clothing of Christ. That's why we have access. There was an ordination ceremony of the Um, Levitical priesthood, Leviticus 8, they had to be bathed in water, they had to be clean, they had to be clothed um, in four priestly garments, linen over the knees, garment woven into one piece as a girdle around the chest and a turban on the head. They had to be anointed with oil, they were touched with blood on their ear, on their thumb, on their toe, their large toe. Once ordained, they would have endless baptizing, washings, and anointings, and their haircut had to even be a certain way. These expectations of the priesthood were precise, required, and inescapably, inescapably, listen to this, external, external. It's an external religion. That's what keeps you from God. Oftentimes we think, man, the answer to coming back to God is getting back into church. I don't necessarily disagree with that sentiment. It's good to be around the people of God and be inflamed by the fellowship, right? But please don't come back to church for religion. Come back to church to connect with Christ and Christians who are connecting with Christ. Think vertically before thinking horizontally. The character of the priest was not at the forefront. We talked about that last time that the legal requirements were everything, not character. So in verse 11, there's a rhetorical question that's asked. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood for under it, the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? Why would Christ have to come? That would he where he would supersede and sort of hop over the tribe of Levi through the line of David. Christ was not named after the order of Aaron. There were some people who believed that Melchizedek was round one and the Aaronic priesthood was round two. So that's where things got better. And that's not the case. Verse 12 basically says there needs to be a change for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Something new has to happen. There needs to be a new priest. There needs to be a new law because the law and the priesthood are connected. Someone who comes from another tribe, look at verse 13, for the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. 
The idea is that the law did not make a precedent or a command for kings to offer sacrifices. We know at times that there were unlawful sacrifices offered by Saul and others. And at times there were permitted sacrifices that were given. Second Samuel six eighteen, David gave a burnt offering and blessed the people and it was allowed. But that wasn't the point here. The point is, is that the idea is that the priesthood is coming from a line of kings in an unprecedented way. It's something of another kind. Look at verse 13. For the one who, of whom these are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. Verse 14. It is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who's become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Somebody who's wholly different. The reason that a priest in the Old Testament would be put into office was an outward compulsion from the law. It was like, well, they're part of this family line, they're in. Christ is a priest because he is internally compelling. He's compelling regarding his perfect character as deity, and as God, something wholly other is needed. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like I need a change? I need something wholly different. I've been trying to get to God a completely wrong way. I need access with God again, something different. It's kind of an interesting nuance in the, the verbiage here in a couple places. It's uh, the idea is that it's another priest that arises. Verse 15, look at that. It's more evident that another priest arises. If the Greek word had been alas there, it would be like saying, I've got an imported car and this car is kind of broken down. So I'm going to get another import. I'm just going to get another one, you know, alas. But if you have an imported car, God bless you here in Anchorage, Alaska to have a little car. But if you need to get a big truck, something that's American made and wholly other that's heteros. I'm getting something completely different. That's the idea here. Something qualitatively different that arises. Christ arises in his first coming. He was here and he rose again on the third day. He has risen. Praise the Lord. Christ is the first and he's the last. It's an indestructible life. What does that mean? means that his life is eternal. You say, but didn't he die when he was here on earth? Yes, he died, but death could not keep him. He didn't stay dead. Verse 17, the author breaks out into song. He's quoting Psalm 110, verse four. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It is witnessed of him. David said that a thousand years before Christ, but it was to predict Christ. And it was to predict that Christ was going to do something. Verse 14, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. The law was abrogated. The law was done away with. Christ fulfilled the law and it became the law of Christ. Listen, what the law could not do in you and for you, It also does not condemn you. Do you hear that? 
The law could not perfect you. It cannot complete you. No kind of external religious obedience can make you right with God, can achieve anything for you. But it also, because of Jesus Christ, does not condemn you. Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen, for the law of the spirit of the life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. The law couldn't do anything for you. It couldn't protect you. It couldn't complete you. But by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, Jesus Christ condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. It's fulfilled, complete. So why draw near to God? Well, because this indestructible life lives for you. Christ lives for you. Verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect, but on the, one, on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Do you want God? Do you want to draw near to him? Listen, do you desire God? Do you desire to be in his holy presence? Because as a believer in the Lord, you have the greatest privilege of any other person on earth who's ever lived or living or will live. You get to know God and be known by him personally as a friend. To be loved by him, to be owned by him and to serve one who loves you. You have the greatest purpose and mission that you could have on earth. And you have the greatest privilege to know Jesus Christ, to go behind the curtain. The curtain, by the way, was rent top to bottom, right? When Christ rose, he, when he died, that happened. And then he rose three days later. It's amazing conquering that for you so that you can know him.